You guys all see that okay? So we've got, what, like 22 minutes to bust through about 40 slides. So I'm going to talk a little fast. Stop me if you have questions, though. All right, so anxiety anxiety comes from the Latin word, I think it's pronounced angere, which means like to choke or to strangle, because you feel like you're choking or strangling. So, but I think also probably my guess would be that anger comes from that as well. <laughs> um, and it's usually characterized by some kind of inappropriate level of arousal. Not like that, Dan. But like, like you're, you're scared. <laughs> Huge grin on this guy's face. <laughs> Usually, like, you're really scared, you're nervous, you're apprehensive, you think some, something terrible is going to happen, you're going to die, you're going to go crazy, the sky is going to fall, and you just, you kind of just all jazzed up, just worried. And so, uh, I was thinking I would try and have somebody fake an anxiety attack in here today, and I could not get any volunteers, so I decided, Did that work? Anybody, no? Podcasts are probably going to, their ears are going to be bleeding. Yeah. All right. So there's a lot of different kind of flavors of anxiety. There's a lot of different forms of, that anxiety comes in. There's generalized anxiety disorder, which is probably far and away the most common. Panic disorder. There's phobias, which are, which are crazy. Uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder. We're not really going to talk much about separation anxiety disorder. That's <clears throat> just kind of uh, like when, you know, like little kids when their parents leave and they get really upset and they vomit because their parents are gone. Uh, that's mostly where you see it actually is in little kids. Sometimes you can actually see the parents have a separation anxiety disorder from their children, too. But, all right. So, at least one in four people are going to have an experience of intense anxiety sometime in their lives. Okay? And so, I mean, we see this all the time in the ER. It's, in fact, I think it's really hard to get through a shift probably without seeing somebody with an anxiety component to what's going on. And I think it's reassuring, at least I hope it's reassuring, to tell them that, you know, like when you go to the mall, one out of every four people you walk by will have gone through the same thing. Like, this is really common, okay? It doesn't mean that you're a freak. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. I don't think this should be stigmatized. But, you know, almost everybody has a, a point in their lives where they go through just absolutely intense anxiety, like interviewing for residency, for instance. So, uh, it, the anxiety disorders have about a 5% lifetime prevalence, although it's usually underdiagnosed. I, I've seen some studies when I was looking through all these reams of papers, uh, some people feel like this is only diagnosed half the time. Like a lot of times it's missed. Because a lot of times people don't present with like the complete, the classic picture. Just like everything else, just like endocarditis or myocarditis. You show up and they have maybe nausea, maybe chest pain or maybe tremors, but they don't actually feel anxious. Right? And so it, it, sometimes it's kind of hard to diagnose. All right, so there's a lot of famous people that have had anxiety disorders, I think. So, you guys are never going to guess who this is, essentially. Give it a shot. Who do you think this is? Anybody? Who said that? Who said Isaac Newton? Oh, my God. Yeah, it is Isaac Newton. So this guy went on to, like, develop calculus, right? This is a guy when I was in college. I used to have wished that he had been hit by a truck as a child. <laughs> All right. Who's this? Winston Churchill. Some of these guys did some pretty incredible things, even though they had it. I mean, it can be debilitating, but you can also be, like, incredibly successful. So, Lucille Ball, Smokey, <laughs> Smokey and the Bandit. So, just in case you're ever looking for pictures of Burt Reynolds on the internet, be careful. <laughs> There's some pretty spicy pictures of Burt Reynolds on the internet. <laughs> oh, I couldn't sleep last night. <clears throat> um, Naomi Campbell, 
Okay. Anybody got a guess on this one? Let's, let's give a guess. Who said Charles Schultz? Oh, man. Look at that. A for you. Okay. Creator Peanut. Howard Stern. Really pretty amazing that there's any psychiatric anything going on there, isn't it? Who would have guessed? Do you know that is? Aretha Franklin. She was just voted as the best. Uh, they, someone, I don't know who it was, like a bunch of music people got together and listed the top 100 singers of all time. She was number one, actually. She's got a nice voice. Guess is there? Yeah, why? I thought that was so hard. All right. Barbara Streisand. And over. So just, just to exonerate myself from slander and libel, I got this from the Anxiety Panic Internet resource. These aren't, this isn't my own personal list. Yeah, I think that's pretty legit. So, I mean, it's written, right? It's on the internet, so it's got to be true. All right, so generalized anxiety disorder. <clears throat> like I said, it's about 5% of Americans. Uh, it's usually kind of like the state of just kind of always being worried. I mean, really worried. And, and sometimes you have physical symptoms instead of being anxious, like I was saying, sometimes you feel nauseous, you lose weight, you can't eat, you can't sleep, um, you have joint aches, you have back aches, you have headaches. I mean, those are a lot of the symptoms that people have. And sometimes they come in for the symptoms and they don't, you say, well, you, you feel anxious? And they say, no, no, I'm fine. My head really hurts. So a lot of times they're on edge, kind of muscle tension, irritable, tired. It's a lot like me after a night shift, actually. Uh, and can't concentrate. So those are a lot of the, the symptoms of generalized anxiety disorder. And so you can tell they're kind of, you know, they're, they're really pretty common symptoms to have. And so I think that probably this is really underdiagnosed. Panic disorder is different. So generalized anxiety disorder is just like I feel kind of anxious all the time. And every now and then maybe I have a panic attack. Panic disorder are like recurrent panic attacks. And the thing that separates this from phobias and some of the other things is there's no identifiable trigger. Okay, so phobias, you know, you're like, well, I'm afraid of snakes, and every time I see a snake, I have a panic attack. And so you can avoid snakes, and so that's not really a panic disorder. Or I'm afraid of public speaking, for instance. <laughs> and so every time I speak in public, I have a panic attack. That's not really panic disorder, right? So panic disorder is like, I'm feeling great, best day of my life, like I'm driving along, all of a sudden totally have a panic attack, freak out, hyperventilate, chest pain, start sweating, get shaky. Absolutely no idea why, right? Like things were going great, and all of a sudden I'm having a panic attack. And this is pretty debilitating. This can be really debilitating because you live in fear of having another one of these attacks. I have one of my relatives that has this disorder, and, and he's afraid to even go apply for a job. He's afraid he's going to have a panic attack. He's afraid that he'll get a job, and he'll be working and having a great day, and things are going well, you know, and he's having some coffee, and all of a sudden he starts shaking, he has a panic attack, and they'll work. And so he's not working. So this can, be, this can be really pretty debilitating. So what are panic attacks? They're like you have all these things. They, it's a state of like pure terror and anxiety. For, for really no good reason, okay? I mean, you're just you're scared that you're going to die. You're scared that you're going nuts. You feel like you can't breathe. You feel like someone's smothering you or like there's a heavy weight on your chest. You're dizzy. A lot of times people come in. I mean, you guys have all seen this, right? Where people are pale and they're shaking and they're sweating. And you think, oh my God, this person's really sick. And it's, you know, it looks like they're having a heart attack or something, right? Or they're having a big old PE or something. So, um, but it, it could just be a, a bad panic attack. So the, the nice thing is they only, usually only last for about half an hour, although sometimes some of the symptoms like the shaking, the nausea, nausea, 
that kind of stuff can last for a little bit longer. But the, the really intense panic attack stuff usually is only 20 or 30 minutes. All right, so phobias. So again, these are different than panic attacks. These usually have an identifiable trigger, okay? And so people kind of go out of their way to avoid these, these triggers. Uh, the, the thing that's interesting about a lot of these anxiety disorders is people are usually have a lot of insight. You know, it's not like some of the other psychiatric disorders where people are like, well, I don't have any problems, any psychiatric problems. People with anxiety disorders usually know they have anxiety disorders. They, they usually know that, you know, I, I, I don't know why, but I'm like terrified of urinals, you know? And so, and they know it, it doesn't make sense, but they can't help it. They're still terrified. So, social phobia, they say 13% of the population has a social phobia. So it's fear of being publicly scrutinized. Uh, these people a lot of times are really, really shy. They don't like interacting with people very much. Um, and there's, there's a lot of specific, there's fear of public speaking, there's fear of crowds, there's fear of, you know, um, close relationships, which has got to kind of suck. Uh, so, yeah. So a lot of times these can be kind of controlled. So, you, you know, I, I know when I was in medical school, I talked about using like beta blockers for people that are afraid of public speaking to help them kind of calm down before they talk and stuff like that. So, so but these are, these are specific identifiable triggers. So there's some crazy phobias out there. But probably the most common one is agoraphobia, which is uh, this fear of being in open places or fear of places where there's, that aren't familiar, where there's no easy escape route, where you can't get help. And so these, a lot of times these people are really debilitated. They're kind of shut in. You know, they, they, they just don't like to leave the house. Um, because at home they feel safe. They know where everything is. It's a familiar environment. But they go out of the house to go to the supermarket or they go to a movie and they're shut in. Even when they're in open spaces, they still feel confined. And so that's a, that's a pretty debilitating phobia and probably one of the most common phobias out there. I mean, that and like fear of heights, I think, are the two most common ones. But there's a bunch of other things. There's ablutophobia, fear of washing or bathing. And then there's anuptophobia, fear of staying single. So these two are not very compatible, right? <laughs> if you have both of those, that's, that's a rough life. Odoxophobia, fear of opinions. Genuphobia, fear of knees. That's got to suck, right? Like, you can't get away from those. Um, Lutrophobia is a little easier. That's a little easier to avoid the trigger. So... Mania phobia, I thought was kind of funny, fear of insanity. And I, I mean, there's, uh, honestly, there's this list, and it is, it must be 10 or 12 pages long. I mean, it was, and there's a lot of really, I mean, it's, it's kind of funny, actually, because there's some really funny things on there. But, but, you know, in all seriousness, this, this can be pretty debilitating. So, all right, obsessive compulsive. So, you guys recognize this guy? Yeah, so I don't, we don't have TV at our house, but, um, my wife watches TV on, you can get TV on the internet. You guys probably all know this. I just found this out. Um, and so while she's breastfeeding at night, she watches TV. This may be more information than you all want. <laughs> <laughs> so I woke up about three nights ago, kind of almost at the, episode, at the end of an episode of Monk, and this guy was cracking me up. He's hilarious. So he's got obsessive compulsive disorder, and he's a private eye, and you guys probably all know this. Um, and he was on this boat trying to catch this killer, and the killer then found out he was on the boat, was trying to catch him. And so he's trying to move through the boat without touching anything. And so he's like trying to open the doors with his elbows and stuff. This guy's chasing him with a gun. He's like, he won't touch anything. And he has this, and he eventually has to jump off the boat. And he's got this little note in his pocket. He's written on, on, his, on his, this note card, you know, because he's also afraid of the water. He's got a lot of different psych things going on. He's also afraid of the water. He's, he, you know, he's got notes. It's like, keep head above water, stay calm, kick. 
And so he jumps in the water and he tries to pull this out of his pocket to read it while he's in the water. It's falling apart in his hands. And then he sees this, looks like a life ring floating not too far away. And he kind of is able to thrash over to it. And he grabs it and picks it up and it's a toilet seat. So he like... <laughs> It was hilarious. And he, he just he chucked it as far as he could and then he's he's trying to wash his hands above his head like in the water and he goes under and, and it was great. So okay, so obsessive compulsive disorder. So obsessions are you can't stop thinking about something. You think about it all the time. Okay? And probably everybody's been obsessed with something at some point. Um, but this is like you know, you, you just oh, and did I leave the stove on? Did I leave the stove on? Did I leave the stove on? And to, to where you can't really concentrate on other things. Or, gosh, I remember to lock the door, I remember to lock the door. You know, I think as a parent, sometimes you obsess about your kids. You're like, gosh, are they safe? Are they okay? Are they safe? Are they okay? Maybe that's normal. I don't know. So, and then compulsions then are like repetitive, rigid routines. Right? So I'm just reading that off the slide. <laughs> so if you're obsessed about cleanliness, for instance, then you compulsively wash your hands all the time. And there's people that literally spend hours and hours and hours a day washing their hands. I mean, they get serious dishpan hands. Yeah, because they just, they just do this. Now, luckily, people with obsessive compulsive disorder, less than half of them have these, manifest these compulsions. Okay, so a lot, of, a lot of people are obsessed about stuff, but they don't manifest the compulsions that um, deal with those obsessions. <coughs> and, and again, these people have pretty good insight. They know, they're like, look, I know I didn't leave the stove on because I checked it 18 times before I left the house today, but I just can't stop thinking about having left the stove on. Right, and so they, so they know, they, they know these obsessions are, they're like, this is just not normal for me to be thinking about this, and it's just not normal for me to spend like 18 hours a day washing my hands, you know, but sometimes it's hard to, uh, it's hard to control. And the PTSD, has everybody here seen The Big Lebowski? <laughs> okay, if you haven't, that's your homework for tonight, is to rent The Big Lebowski, this is a great, great movie. In fact, I don't think Zim has seen this, and, and you can tell because he never quotes it. <laughs> so, um, so this is Walter from the Big Lebowski. This guy's like the poster child for PTSD, right? So PTSD is actually probably has of all the things we're talking about, they probably has the worst prognosis. It's probably one you know is also pretty debilitating. So usually it's in, re in response to either experiencing or witnessing, sometimes even hearing about a traumatic event can can trigger PTSD in people. Uh, and, and generally what they do is they, they relive it in their mind. It happens again and again and again. Each time it's terrifying and it's horrible and they have this huge kind of over-the-top physiologic response to it. So, and they get, um, you know, again, that's the arousal that we're talking about, Dan, is when, you're, when you're, your heart's racing and you feel terrible and you're anxious and you're nervous and you're scared. Um, and they do things to try and avoid that. And so... You know, whether that's avoiding people that remind them of the incident or avoiding situations that remind them of the incident. Or smells are a pretty powerful trigger for PTSD. So avoiding smells, you know, there's, there's a really strong emotional connection, I think, in the limbic, cis, I don't know, one of those parts of the brain with smell. So, and this actually has a, not such a great prognosis, okay? This is pretty tough to treat and, and a lot of times can be chronic. So, but yeah, it's usually things like violence, like war, in Walter's case, you know, Vietnam, um, things, you know, you see a lot of people through the ER, sadly, that have had, you know, sexual abuse, that, uh, that suffer from this, um, any kind of violent act, usually. Um, I, I've heard of people developing PTSD, I read about people developing PTSD, even from therapeutic procedures, so like chest tubes, 
and things like that. So just something to keep in mind when we're helping people, we're doing things for people, just, you know, keep that in mind. So what, what are the causes of all these, these anxiety types? Okay, so you guys remember there's all these neurotransmitters, right? There's GABA and norepinephrine. And there's all, it doesn't really matter, okay? All that stuff's crap. <laughs> I mean, you'll read about it when it comes to anxiety, but I was talking to some of our psychiatrists here, and they're like, really? It's all about the serotonin. You know, and that's one of the things that's nice about a lot of these anxiety disorders is they respond really well to SSRIs. So anxiety usually... So if you see somebody in the ER that comes in with, say, chest pain or, or dyspnea, and you're pretty sure it's an anxiety attack, you can't really write anxiety on the chart as your one and only diagnosis. Right? It's kind of a diagnosis of exclusion. You've got to think of all these other things. So you know, if they're dyspneic, you've got to think of PE, you know, pheochromocytoma or carcinoid syndrome, if they're real tachycardic or sweaty, you know, drugs, cocaine, methamphetamine, a uh, big one around here. And then drug withdrawal, like alcohol withdrawal, benzo withdrawal, clonidine withdrawal, um, and then other anxiety disorders. And then the one thing that I think we probably, you know, even though I know that all the nurses are supposed to screen for it, we probably don't do a good enough job asking about in intimate partner violence, okay, or some kind of other violence. And, and you know, some of these things will, will kill you, like PEs might kill you if you don't pick it up. FEO may eventually kill you. Drugs may eventually kill you. But if you, you know, if you miss this and they go home and they're killed by their partner, like you're kind of complicit, right? <coughs> so that's, that's important to, to ask about, especially in anxiety stuff. Comorbidities, how are we doing for time? Oh, we're rocking. All right, so at least half these people have comorbid diseases. Most of, most of the time it's depression. Um, but they also, you know, I think a third of people have two comorbid conditions, like a mood disorder, substance abuse disorder, personality disorder. So, and so the, the rate of suicide attempts for anxiety is about the same as depression, about 17%. No, I'm sorry, 7 or 8% for, for isolated anxiety and isolated depression. But you put them together and they're additive. And so it's about 20% of people with anxiety and depression will try and kill themselves at some point. Okay, so that's noting. That's uh, 1 in 5 is a pretty, pretty high number. So treatment. So SSRIs really is the... Uh, can you see that? <laughs> SSRIs are kind of the big, the big deal. Okay. So I think when you think about treating people with anxiety attacks, you think about benzos. Benzos are okay for the short term to abort the attack, but it's like asthma. So benzos are sort of like the albuterol, and SSRIs are like the steroid inhaler, right? So you don't, you don't put people on albuterol every day, all the time, right? Because, well, albuterol is not addictive, but benzos are, right? Especially Xanax. Xanax is like the devil's drug, okay? Because it's fast on, it's fast off, you get this, this you know, immediate euphoria, and then it's gone, right? And it's really short-acting. And so if you're going to use a benzo, use something that's going to stick around for a while. Use Ativan, okay? I don't want to see, when you work with me, I don't want to see anybody write Xanax, please. So, but benzos aren't, benzos aren't like a cure for anxiety, right? Benzos abort the anxiety attack, but they don't treat anxiety disorders. And so usually SSRIs are the way to go. And because they're a little bit activating, they're, they're, they're a little bit arousing, I recommend you start with a low dose. So like if you're going to use, um, I don't know, Citalopram, start with five milligrams a day. So, and then, I mean, they're, they're pretty safe as long as they're, you know, uh, yeah, start with five milligrams and then move up in a week. <coughs> so, 
Uh, the other thing that's really nice is this is one of the few things that really responds well to cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Because people have such good insight into what's going on. You know, they say, look, I know this fear of um, carpet is irrational, right? And so they can kind of, that's what cognitive behavioral therapy is. And probably we all do this every day, right? You think, gosh, oh, I'm giving this talk today on anxiety. And what if it really sucks? Like, what if people hate it? And then you kind of you sit there and think about it, and you're like, now so what? <laughs> I don't care. You know, like, I'm, I'm not going to get fired because people hate my job or hate my, my talk, you know? So kind of, we all use cognitive behavioral therapy to think, oh, man, what if something really bad happens? And then cognitively, oh, you know what? I can deal with it, right? So, you know, like when you're given, like when you're public speaking and they tell you to think of everybody in their underwear, sitting there in their underwear. That's right, Paul. So, <laughs> looking good, buddy. So, <laughs> so yeah, so that's, that's kind of behavioral therapy. And, and again, it works really well with this disease because people have a lot of good insight. Okay? And so, yeah. So I think that's pretty much it. Um, so, oh, no, that's not, that's not pretty much it. So, there's, so I found two studies, actually. One was done in 83 and one was just done in 2007. And they both showed that about one in three people that come to the ER for any complaint of pain have some sort of either depression or anxiety. So it's really common. And these people, we know these people use the ER probably more than people without psychiatric disorders. So the interesting problem is when you have somebody coming in complaining of pain and that pain happens to be in their chest, right? And it's easy to go, oh man, it's just anxiety attack, you know, it's anxiety disorder. So they did a really great study that, that showed the same number. One in three people with chest pain had anxiety or depression. But they had the exact same rates of acute coronary syndrome in those people that is people without anxiety or depression, okay? So you can't blow these people off. You've got to treat these people. You know, even if they come in and they're having an anxiety attack and chest pain, maybe their anxiety attack is precipitated by the fact that their heart muscle is melting, right? That's a reasonable thing to be anxious about. So, um, so you've got to treat these people like, you've got to treat their chest pain like real chest pain. So in summary, it's common. There's a lot of different subsets that you can, you can kind of suss out based on their symptoms and what triggers uh, It's very treatable. And the prognosis is pretty good except for in PTSD. So, and whatever you do, don't blow, don't say, hey, they're crazy. As Dr. Wyatt likes to say, even nuts get okitis, right? So, you always, always treat their complaint as a real complaint. All right, I want to just, Dr. Dr. White is, I uh, talked with a lot about this talk. So, you guys have any questions?